Philippians, we're in chapter 2 still. We're going to finish, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 2 tonight. We're going, to, we're going to be in verses 25 through 30, and if time permits, we will move into chapter 3. I'm prepared to go into chapter 3 if the, if the Lord wills, but we'll just see how it goes. Uh, I'm excited about, like I, you heard me just touch on in my opening prayer, I'm excited about some of the things that God wants to pull out. But let me just kind of give you a little heads up. I gave you a commercial last time when we were together last week about some things that you've heard me teach on before, but we're going to go into in a little bit more detail using scriptures you haven't seen as well as some you have. But you've got to understand that what we're going to be dealing with here at the beginning goes against how most of us have been raised in the church. You remember last week we used the illustration about Junior who had been raised in the home all his life and had been told by mom and dad, you're not having to cut the grass, you don't have to help with the dishes, you don't got to make the bed. And then mom and dad wake up after Junior's 50, 60, 70 years old and say, hey, we just realized we've been doing it wrong. Um, this is actually supposed to be something that's expected of you. Uh, you're supposed to be doing these things. And you know how we looked at last week, Junior might not react real well. <laughs> Let me just say to you, as we deal with this concept and this topic in the Word tonight, I just want you to understand that it may go against what you're used to. I understand that. But we, our, my prayer is, is that you're, you would be desirous, as myself as well, to really be lined up with the will and the Word of God. And actually, when we do let the Word speak for itself, you'll see that how God designed the church is pretty exciting when we let it happen the way God designed and not the way we think it should be. So uh, when we left off, I'm going to read it to you again, verses 25 through 30. It says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There's a lot still here in this verses that we've touched on a little bit uh, last week. Uh, Paul had a concern for Epaphroditus to the point that when God spared him and he didn't die, when it looked like he was going to, Paul said a pretty interesting statement. He said, he saved, God saved me sorrow upon sorrow. I mean, by sparing him. I mean, now, was, uh, was Epaphroditus a relative when it came to flesh and blood? No. He was just a brother in Christ that he had met. When he was in Philippi, Epaphroditus, remember last week we looked at, was a member, if you will, of the church in Philippi. He had been sent by the church in Philippi with a love gift financially to come give to Paul when he was in prison there in Rome, but also to check on him and have communication between the two groups, if you will, and between Paul and that church. He had met Epaphroditus in that church, and they had grown to love each other. And his love for him was such that if he would have died, Paul said it would have grieved him like you wouldn't believe. I really feel like this is a necessary thing for us to do tonight, though. And I touched on it at the end of our study last time. We've had this mindset that says, man, that's how the pastor ought to be. I want a man of God. I want a pastor who's got that level of concern for the whole congregation. And then you say, Jim, we know better than that. You know, uh, we don't expect the pastor to have that level of concern for the whole congregation. But we'd sure like and expect him to have it for us. <laughs> Isn't that really where we are? Absolutely. Isn't that exactly how it has been in the church for all these years? How many of you over the years have known someone who has left the church because the pastor wasn't there for them in their time of need? Years ago, when I was in the Atlantic and teaching on this, I had a couple older ladies come to me, and they were saying, you know, they, they came after a Sunday service. It was down front after the service, and they came up to me, and they said, Pastor, would you please forgive us? I said, what for? And they said, well, we shouldn't have expected you to be at all our surgeries and expected you to do all these things and come to visit us and all these things. We, we shouldn't have expected that. Would you please forgive us? And I said, ladies, it's forgiven. And then they leaned in and looked around, and they said, but you're going to come still see us, right? <laughs> And they were sincere. You know, God love them. It's, that's the way it's always been. Folks, for some of you, there's this mindset that you kind of expect the pastor to be there for you. And I'm going to show you, as we lay it out from Scripture, 
that God has designed leadership in the church to help make sure that the body's being taken care of, but God never designed the leadership of the church to be the ones who did the actual ministering to the body. But it's actually that God had all along designed the body to administer to the body. The leadership's just making sure that the needs are being met, but not the ones who are actually doing it. Go with me to Acts chapter 6. We'll start there. Acts chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> now in those days, or th these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There was a daily distribution by the body, and we're going to get into that topic a little bit some more today. There was a daily distribution of food to the widows who were in need in that local congregation there. As you know, the number has grown rapidly because of the preaching of Peter. 3,000 are saved, and then three, the number grows to 5,000. And, and because of this, there are widows that are, need to be taken care of in the body. God designed the body to take care of those believing widows. And the Greek widows felt like they were getting neglected, and that the Hebrew widows were getting un, more unfair, or unfair or more fair treatment. And so they complained. That never happens in church, but it happened here. And a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, they gathered everybody and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here you see the... The natural reaction was very human to go to the pastoral leadership and say, hey, you all need to take care of this. But they were wise enough to say this will derail us from what it is that God has called us to do, which is to spend our time and our lives in this book and to memorize it and put it in our hearts and communicate it and use this word to equip the body to do the work of the ministry. It would be wrong for us to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables. You choose from among you seven men full of spirit and wisdom. Listen closely. When it says we'll hand this duty over to them, it doesn't say that they would be the ones who waited on the tables. It just says that they're now responsible to make sure that it's being taken care of. Some of you in this group who have been nominated or elected as deacon, you know full well that the same attitude that was leaped or heaped on the pastor has been heaped on you. Where we all of a sudden expected the deacons now to do all this stuff. And just because you're a deacon, you're supposed to be at every single meeting and every time the doors are open. And some of you have the deacon family ministry plan. And you, all of a sudden we started because we you know the pastor can't take everybody, even though we still expect him to be there for all of us. We give each deacon a family, a group of families to take care of and and all this kind of stuff. And we got in our mess in our churches where people say, I don't even know who my deacon is and all this kind of stuff. And the scripture never taught that you get a deacon. But what we've done over the years is. Not really letting the scripture speak the way I hope it does tonight. We have just come up with a plan that makes sense to us to make sure that there's somebody in charge who's going to take care of these things. And without realizing it, the body has become receivers of the ministry instead of the doers of the ministry. Now, if you were to find out or want to dig where we really got started, I won't take the time to get into that tonight. But if you want to go back to a passage we're going to look at at the end of our section here on this section in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, in the King James translation, which is the only translation that we had for a while in the English, it says in the King James translation, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, for the equipping, sorry, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edification of the body. So for the longest time in the King James translation, it read like the equipping of the saints and the work of the ministry was the pastor's job. So I, I'm not going to be super mean about this, because as they sought to look at the scriptures, it sure looked like it was their job. But every other translation, English translation, including the New King James, has come to realize that, hopefully you understand this, the original text didn't have punctuation. And the translators do their best to use their abilities in, in, in Greek and Hebrew to understand where the commas and the punctuation should be. Every other English translation, including the New King James, has realized there's a comma there that doesn't belong and all the other translations read this way. He gave these different types of men for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. No comma between the two. For the edification of the body. 
And I want you to understand that all along, God's Word has said that the pastors were supposed to be equipping you to be the ones who go visit people when they're sick. You to be the one leading people to Jesus. You to be the one checking on folks and ministering to their needs physically. While the pastors are the ones who live in the Word and spend time in prayer. And they know this book. And they are using their gifts to communicate it so that people are equipped to go do what it is. But what has happened to us? We have turned into a group of folks who... I need my pastor. When the Bible says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So I'm going to ask you guys, as we really dig into this tonight, you want to grow in your faith? Let go of your pastor. Let him be whom God calls him to be and let God do with him what God wants to do with him. And you find out who it is God wants you to be. And you find out where your gifts are. And you just minister to the body as God has. And like I said to you last week, for a lot of our churches are, are sick and it's not really the pastor's fault. It's really the body's fault. Let's keep reading. Go to Acts chapter 4. Look at verses 32 through 37. Says now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that uh, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. There was not. Uh, let me read it again. Not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now listen closely to what I want to get into here tonight. In this passage we see that the attitude of the body was that what was theirs wasn't really theirs, and they were willing just to share it with each other. Now, real quick, so you don't go too far in the wrong direction, there are those who have tried to teach that the early church were communists. And that everybody just lumped it all into a pile and everybody got it redistributed equally. That's not what the passage is saying, and I have proof to you that that's it. Because if you go on later in Acts chapter 5, after Barnabas takes and sells a piece of property and gives the money to the church to be take, used to take care of the body, Ananias and Sapphira decide to do the same thing, but they keep some of the money and pretend like they had given the whole amount. Peter says a very interesting thing to him, if you go and double check me. He says, wasn't this yours to do with as you wished beforehand? And after it was sold, was it not still yours to do? In other words, <laughs> it was not communism. They were just, it was kind of like this. If you got a truck and I need a truck and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, you say, Jim, my truck's your truck. Use it. You need it? Use it. It didn't mean that it now became my truck and you're truckless. It's still your truck. But your attitude was, if my brother needs it, it's his, his truck. And we don't consider it mine or yours. We're just sharing it together. But it still stayed in their possession. They came and they would lay these things at the apostles' feet. And the apostles, again, God designed leadership in the church, pastors and deacons and so on, to oversee the body. They made sure that things were taken care of. But who was it that was really ministering to the body, according to these passages? The body. Great grace was upon who? Upon them all. Upon them all. Folks, let me just tell you, there's nothing greater than knowing you've been used by the Lord. I mean, there really isn't. But we unfortunately think when it comes to being used by the Lord, you're supposed to stand up here with a microphone. No. That's not what God's designed. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. You'll see it even more clearly because we're about to get into something. Well, let me just give you the commercial for it, and then I'll let the Scripture kind of talk to it. There has been this wrong attitude, I believe, over the years that it's expected of the church to pay the bills of the community. There's this wrong attitude that I want to show you doesn't line up with Scripture that if someone in the community who's lost outside the church isn't able to pay their light bill... They go to the church and expect the church to pay their light bill. Take it from a guy who's been a pastor for over 20 years, been preaching for 30. I was in the pastor at over 20, and you would not be, oh, you'd be shocked at how many people continually show up at the church and get upset if the church doesn't pay their gas, give them gas money. Because that's what the church is supposed to do. I'm going to show you scripturally that the Bible actually teaches that the, the giving of the body to the body was not to pay the bills of the lost, 
but it was actually to make sure that those within the body were being taken care of. God was having the body take care of itself that way. The money, when there was, that doesn't mean we're not to meet the needs of those outside the church, but according to the scriptures, was it the church's job corporately to meet the needs of the body, or was it the individuals of the churches as God laid it on their heart to reach out and meet the needs? The Good Samaritan did not bring the guy to the church. He pulled money out of his own pocket to help them out and help him out. Paid for his bills, took care of him. Folks, there are going to be times that God's going to want you to reach out for the, for the grace of God and help a neighbor who's in need. There have been times my wife and I, when we were living where we are, uh, there was a neighbor or family across the street that we were reaching out to and trying to reach for the gospel. And we had built great relationship with them. And they had played with our kids. And we're over there playing on their basketball goal when ours rusted out. And we were just, we just but they were having trouble paying their house payment. And they might have to move. And I'm not sharing this for any other reason but to be an illustration. God put it on our hearts to go write them a check to help them make their house payment. What a great opportunity it was for us to sit down in the living room and say, we're doing this because of Jesus, because we love you, and we don't want to lose you as neighbors. We know you're having trouble paying your bill. We didn't say, go see the church. They'll help you pay your bill. We wrote them a check to help them pay their house payment. And folks, I want you to see that scripturally, and you're going to see it here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I told you to turn there, but I didn't listen to myself. 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 8. It can't get any more clear than this. It says, Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Again, that family model that's all throughout the Scriptures. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. According to the scriptures, if you've got family members who have a need, are you to tell them, go see the church? You're to make sure that you're helping to take care of it yourself. Again, the giving, the benevolence, the, the offerings, the money that has been put into the storehouse is to meet the needs of the body. Because the body is supposed to care for the body. Unfortunately, because we have expected the pastor to do the ministering for us, we've also expected the church to meet the needs of the community. Oh, and by the way, Good luck for any of you who are in church leadership to try to stop the handouts. You'd be amazed at some of the things you have to deal with if you were to tell someone, no, we're not doing that. I had a man tell me when I was at Indy Atlantic, he says, I'll get baptized right now if that's the only way you'll write me a check. Again, we have been teaching the wrong thing for a long time. Our churches are not sick because their pastors are bad. No, trust me, there are some bad pastors. And God deals with them. The Bible says in James chapter 3, don't you seek to be one of those preacher teachers. Because those of us who are will be held in higher accountability. Folks, let me just tell you, I don't take lightly when I stand here and teach the Word of God and say, thus says the Lord, because the Bible is very clear that He's going to hold me in higher accountability than He will you because of the role that He's given me. At the same time, don't expect the pastors to do the work of the ministry when God's expected you. And some of you have to take some time tonight to really let the Spirit of God let this sink in and let go of your pastor and stop expecting him to be there for you. He didn't call. He knew I was in the hospital and he didn't come by. Oh, there are those who are gifted in that way and love to do it and some are good at it. That doesn't mean every pastor is supposed to be that way. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastor, teacher, shepherds. It's hard to let it go, though, isn't it? There's just something about it. We want it. We want that special touch. Jim, I know you're right, but, well, let's keep reading. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Jim, yes, sir. I go to a mega church. I don't have to worry about my pastor. 
That's great. That helps. There's 15,000 people there. Honestly, the, big, the, the bigger the church is, the easier it is for people to let go. But you'd be surprised in that big church that you go to how many people still expect, and I know his name, and I was about to say it, but your pastor to be there for them. It's still there. Oh, it's shocking. It's still there. Ephesians chapter 4. Listen again, verses 11 through 16. But now look closely. I, I've taught on this before, but there's a section of this that I always skip over. I'm not going to skip over it tonight. Verse 11. And he, God, gave the apostles. By the way, those are the ones who do the traveling type of ministry. The word apostle means sent one, one sent on a mission. Those are the ones who equip the church with the preaching and the teaching of the word through a traveling type of ministry. I'm not going to put apostle on my business card because it'll freak people out, but that's what God's got me doing now. I'm sent to go equip the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Listen closely. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. This is a process, you can see. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. According to this passage, if the body is weak and not growing into its knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it is being tossed to and fro by every false teaching that's out there today, it's because the pastors, first of all, have not been doing their calling to equip the body to do the work and to equip them with the ministry of the word. Folks, I'm going to say something to you that you may not realize, but it's very, very true. And take it from someone who is around the country dealing with those in leadership. Most pastors today do not spend any more time in their Bible than your average good Sunday school teacher who's preparing their Sunday school lesson. That's because they got to run from this committee meeting to that committee meeting to that hospital visit to this counseling session. And we, without realizing it, say, well, we don't expect the pastor to be there for everybody, but we kind of expect him to be there for us. Isn't that what happens when we start looking for a new pastor? We take, and I'm going to say it as nicely as I can, a stinking survey. What would you like our next pastor to be? Some say, well, I want him to be this. And some others say, well, I'd like him to be that. And I, we put together a profile of Superman. It's our fault. Paul was on the search committee that brought me. I showed up and said, I'm your guy. I had my Superman shirt on. I looked at that and I said, I can do this. And let me tell you something, folks. Let me just tell you something. For the first year, year and a half, your pastor's going to look like he can. I mean, he's kissing all the babies, shaking all the hands. He's burning the candle at both ends and neglecting his family, but trying to be everything to everybody. But then after a while, if your preacher is a prophet, you're going to hear things like, I love brother so-and-so. I never learned as much as when he was preaching and teaching, but he's just doesn't visit enough. He's not approachable. And tell me if this isn't what happens. Inevitably, when he moves on, you'll bring in a guy that has the gift mix the previous guy didn't have. Don't we go through that cycle? Oh, then after a while, he'll look real good for a year, year and a half. But after a while, you hear this, I love brother so-and-so, he was there when mama died. And he's a wonderful man, he listens compassionate. I'm just not getting fed. Folks, it's time. We'll let the word speak. Did Paul care for Epaphroditus? Yes, to the point that he would have felt like he would have died himself if Epaphroditus had died. And he thanked God that he saved him sorrow upon sorrow. But guess what? Paul wasn't supposed to go and be everything to everyone. He said, look, I'm sending him back to you. Was Paul able to go do anything about it? No, he's stuck in prison. He says, I'm sending him back to you so that y'all can minister to each other. It's time we understood that God has designed us to be the people who do the work of the, of the kingdom. And the pastor's job is just to equip us through the teaching and the preaching of the word. I love it when people send me emails. 
and say, hey, well, I, I got one from, I get them from people all around the country. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? Because they know I'm going to give them like 17 verses. <laughs> but I love that. I love that. I was answering those emails today in between my appointments. I don't mind you asking me Bible questions. I haven't read through your presentation because you said, hey, tell me what you're thinking. We're going to talk afterwards about what I saw in your presentation. I don't mind that. Because this is what I'm supposed to be doing, using the word to equip you for the work of ministry. But some of you have been mad because you shared with me a prayer request and I didn't call you. Some of you said, I, I gave you their email and you didn't send them a note. No, I didn't. That's what you're all supposed to be doing. I remember years ago when I was pastor at my church in Chicago, they couldn't even have Wednesday night supper until the pastor prayed. He's the only one that could pray. I was young in the faith. I didn't, but I, I was, I was, I'm not young in the faith, but young in the ministry. I, I knew at this point something's really wrong with this, but I, I wasn't brave enough to say, hey, someone else pray. So I did a very mature thing. On Wednesday night at dinner time, I hid. I did. And the church in Chicago, uh, the fellowship hall was directly beneath the sanctuary. And uh, I went upstairs and I hid at a janitor's closet. And you could hear downstairs, where's Brother Jim? Food's getting cold. Someone find Brother Jim. He's got to say the prayer. Then they sent my kids. Nicole will tell you. They sent her. Go find your dad. I don't know how, but she found me. And I'm in a janitor's closet. And I'm going, get away from me. Go. Daddy, they're looking for you. She was about this tall. Daddy, they want you to come pray. Get out of here. Eventually, they you know, have someone pray. They came, when I came down, they were like, you, were, you weren't here for the prayer. And I remember saying to them, if there's not another person in this room that can thank God for this food, I'm a failure as a pastor. And they didn't really mean it another way. It's just that's the way it's always been. Isn't it? Good thing no one got food poisoned that night. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, I know this goes against what we've been raised in. Do you want to be set free? Let go of your pastor. How many of you have had nights of bellyache? You just sat around on the phones and emails talking about that rascal in leadership. Let it go. Oh, what about God's designed leadership to take care of leadership? If there's accusations against an elder, if there's more than two, God will deal with it and they'll be held in high accountability. You've got a big God. You want to find joy in your walk with the Lord? Find out what it is that God's gifted you to do and go do it to somebody else in the body. Let's keep moving. Look at verse 30. That, by the way, that's back in Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> Paul says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking... In your service to me. Now, I'll be honest with you. At, when I began studying this, I thought it was saying something. And as I dug into it deeper, I realized it was saying something totally different. At first, I thought that it was saying that the Philippians had begun to give, but then they stopped. And now they were continuing the gift. But as I began to really wrestle with the scriptures, I came to realize that's not what it's saying at all. And I can't wait to show you what it's saying here. All right. Paul said that Paphroditus completed what was lacking in the Philippian church's service to him. What does this mean? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, Paul is not blaming or accusing the Philippian church like I first thought. Go to Philippians chapter 4, look at verse 10. When he says that there was something about them that was lacking, he wasn't accusing them or saying it was bad and something they, were, they were doing something wrong. Look at verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's referring to this gift of money that Epaphroditus has brought. And he says, I'm thankful that you revived your concern. And then he realized how that sounds. He said, no, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity. Now, this will help us start getting into a correct interpretation of this. All right. They had no opportunity to go with this gift because, look, as I put it in my notes, it's nigh impossible for a whole congregation to go visit Paul in Rome. Right? Pretty much impossible for them all to go visit Paul and bring the gift. 
But Epaphroditus did or completed what they could not do or where they lacked. Do you understand what I'm saying? The body ministers to the body. Epaphroditus was a representative of the whole congregation, and he did what the whole body couldn't do because it's hard for a whole body to go do this. Well, let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 through 18. As you've heard me say over the years, if you are trying to get a correct interpretation of a passage, you look at the context and you check the context, and once you think you have the correct interpretation according to the context, as we've just done, that doesn't mean you have the correct interpretation, does it? What are you checking it against next? The whole of Scripture, because... If it doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture, it can't be the correct interpretation because God wrote the whole thing. And I'm going to show you two or three other places here which will actually help us realize that that is a correct interpretation and make it make it even more sense. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verses 15 through 18. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. A very similar thing he's saying. Look, these people that came from your church, they came to visit and they refreshed me. And they did what you couldn't do. But I saw them not only as doing this wonderful thing, I saw it not only as coming from them, I saw it as coming from you all. Do you see it? When you find out what it is that God's gifted you to do, and as I said earlier, you go and do it to somebody else in the body, it isn't just you doing it to the body. It's not only Christ doing it through you, but it is the body ministering to the body. Do you understand? You will become a representative of the bigger whole. Is it possible for the whole body to meet each other's needs? No. But God never designed it that way. He designed it that when individuals meet each other's needs, it's representative of the whole. And in the same way, when he says that he completed what was lacking in your service, he did what you were unable to do. Well, you want further proof that this is what the correct interpretation is? Um, <laughs> Paul said that something was lacking in regards to Jesus. Now, is Jesus lacking in a deficient way in any way? Is Jesus being accused of something bad when it says he's lacking? You say, where does it say that Jesus is lacking anything? Well, go to Colossians chapter 1. Go to Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse 24. says, now I rejoice, Colossians 1 verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Did you catch that? Paul says, my suffering is actually filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul saw that his sufferings on behalf of the church were his doing physically what Jesus couldn't do from heaven. Did Jesus suffer in his body for his bride? Yes. And he still does. He still does. From heaven, through the body. And there are those, for the sake of the body, who are experiencing tremendous suffering. Well, you say, well, what do you mean? Well, doesn't it say in 2 Corinthians, we're not going to go there, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we who have suffered have received God's comfort so that we may comfort others in similar situations. Sometimes you're going through a suffering and God brings you through it so that you can be a minister to someone else in the body who's going through a similar thing because you've been there. As a pastor, I for too often have said, I understand. And I finally had a godly lady say to me, no, you don't. And I say, you're right, I really don't. But it's the thing we preachers are supposed to say. I, I, I don't know what you're going through. I've never been there. I hope I never, ever get there. I don't understand. And I began to wise up and realize there are people in the body that I knew had been through these things. And I said, go see so-and-so, go see so-and-so. And the body ministered to the body in ways that I never could. When I came to realize I wasn't the Holy Spirit, I became a really good preacher. <laughs> but it, had, it took a while. Because I had been raised that it was my job to meet the needs of everyone. Well, in America, we pay the pastor. So 
Yep. Yep. Realizing that God writes the You're right. Yes, ma'am. Does that go along with where Jesus said you will do even greater things? Uh, that's definitely tied in. Definitely tied in. Paul just simply said, I am experiencing in my body for your sake what Christ cannot do from heaven because he's in heaven, but he's doing it through me for you. When Paul said... He, that Epaphroditus completed what was lacking in your service to me. He wasn't saying you were deficient. He just said he did what you weren't able to do as a whole, as a representative of you on your behalf. Folks, I don't know about you, but that gets me kind of excited about doing whatever it is God's called me to do. Because, yes, I know God's called me. Yes, I know God's gifted me. Yes, I know these things. But when I go and I speak to the places that I'm going and God uses me in that way, I understand as well that it's Jesus reaching out to minister to those people. And it changes how I, I work as I don't go do my ministry. It's not my ministry. It's Jesus wanting to love these people. So now wherever I go, I, even when God has me say hard things, I instantly or, 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 I'm trying to, to walk into that place with a mindset that says, what does Jesus want to say to them today? Not what do I want to say to them? Not what do I think they need to hear? What does Jesus want to say to them today? That's what I get excited about what's going to go on here. Because I, as I do my prayer and my study, I come to realize what God wants to do. And I get kind of giddy about it because oh, I can't wait to tell you what the Lord wants you to see. Oh, by the way, whether you see it or not, that's not up to me either. What's my job? My job is to communicate it and to live it. I leave the rest to the Lord. Well, have you been examining your results? I had one pastor call me up one time. He said, uh, Jim, I'm thinking about bringing you to our church and uh, having you teach your principles, your eight principles of a God-centered church uh, program, and I'm thinking about having you do it here. By the way, let me just give God a real quick praise. Uh, this September 5th, we'll start our 10th year of this traveling ministry that God called me into. And I still don't have a brochure. <laughs> I'm still not saying, hey, can I come preach? And God has filled the calendar and God is doing an amazing thing. And I come to realize he don't need my help. I just do what he tells me to do. And he's paid the bills. He is, uh, it's awesome. But this guy says, I want you to give me a couple of names of some churches that have tried your program and it's been successful. Those of you that know me knew I had to swallow a couple of times before I answered. And I said, sir, I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, but you just asked me a stupid question. <laughs> you just asked me, do biblical principles work? See, the issue is not whether or not people have, uh, whether or not the biblical principles work. Biblical principles are true. My role is to go communicate it to them. Whether a church ever applies them or not, that's not my job. Oh, I can tell you stories of places where they actually have applied them, but I don't want you to think this is some program that is the latest one down the road, and you try this, it'll help your church. You've got to decide, is what I'm teaching biblical? And if it is, does your church need to hear it? And then go from there and leave the results to God. By the way, I didn't get the invitation. <laughs> no, no, there wasn't a book at that time, so... Yeah, who knows? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's, let's let this, the Word of God just kind of hammer this last point that we just looking at about the body ministering to the body. Let's let the Word of God just, just nail it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are what? The body of who? Christ and individually members of it. Now I'll be honest with you. I wish the ESV hadn't used the word member because there's so much problem with the word member. Too many of our churches today have turned into country clubs. They're more interested in the color of the carpet or whether the choir should wear robes. They're more interested in their membership. And I don't like that word member. I know what it means. It means a part, a, a part of the body. You're all a part of the body. As you'll see in the, in, in, in the ESV, they'll talk about how our bodies have many members. It just means parts. But listen, you are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Are you all the head? 
Nobody's the head except Christ. Are you all a hand? No. Are you all a foot or a tongue or an eye or an ear? No. I don't know what part you are. I'm not even really sure what part I am. It's loud, whatever part it is. But let me just tell you, when you understand that God's going to use somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else all to accomplish his purposes, and we stop, stop expecting one person to be everything to everybody, and we stop worrying about whether or not every other part's doing its job, and we just do the part we're supposed to do, it's fun. And we trust God for how it's all going to play out. You're all a part of the body. You're a part of the body of Christ. And he right now from heaven wants to manifest himself to the world and to the body. And he wants to use you. Go find out what it is. Go find out what it is. 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 7. I touched on this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I'm going to say something right now that just came to my heart as I was reading this. Please hear it in love. It's going to sound hard. But some of you, in the midst of your afflictions, enjoy the afflictions and all the attention that you get by you know, weeping and moaning about your affliction. You never get to the point where you really let Christ minister to you and bring you comfort. Well, that's the pastor's job. He wasn't. No. When you let Christ minister to you and you receive the comfort that he gives, which is beyond anything any of us could ever do. And when you let someone minister to you and you listen to them, you can receive his comfort so then he can use you to comfort others. But if you get stuck... And woe is me. You're a body part that's gone gangrene and it's not helpful to the rest of the body. Amen. Receive the comfort that God has for you. We go through stuff. It happens. It's how he works his work. It's how we get to know him. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 10, and we'll get there maybe by the end of the year. But uh, he said, I want to know Christ. But then we stop. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Folks, you want to really know who Jesus is? You want to grow in your walk? Let me just tell you, you will never experience who he really is until you actually receive the suffering that happens in this life. It's part of it. We've got to stop thinking, how can I get a life with no trouble? How can I oh, hold my breath? Maybe this won't happen. And I, I have a little bit of that. I was raised by a dad who was always worried about what might happen. And so he tried to control every little thing so nothing bad happened. And I got, you know, the apple don't fall far from the tree. I have a tendency to be like that myself. And God has to keep saying, do you trust me? And like we said last week, there's a difference between saying, yeah, I trust you, and yeah, I trust you. The future, it's easy to say we trust him. It's hard right in the midst of it. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Isn't that cool? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen, provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen to me. There is teaching out there today that is dominion theology that says that when trouble tries to show itself in your life or tries to rear its ugly head, all you do is say no to it. And you can have dominion because you are more than a conqueror through Christ. And that doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture, folks. It can't be a correct interpretation. When the Bible says you're more than conquerors through him who loved you, it cannot mean that you can say no to any trouble that ever is going to come and you can ride over. No, no, no. Because this passage here says we're his children and we're heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. What did the Bible say in Hebrews chapter 12? That God disciplines us? Does he not? It may not seem pleasant at the time, but later it will produce and yield its fruitful righteousness. Now also, he says in that passage in Hebrews 12, if you're not disciplined, you're what? You're not his child. 
what does he use? He used suffering. Paul said, I prayed three times for dominion. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. And by the way, the answer is no. I won't take this away. You're not going to fill a church with that kind of preaching, I understand. But you're going to have a healthy church. You're going to have a healthy church. Go to John chapter 8. Look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know that passage, I hope. Go to Matthew 5. Look at verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. How am I the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. No, I'm the light of the world now because he's in me and I'm his body. And what God cannot do from heaven physically, I fulfill what is lacking in Christ's service. We don't even like to use that word, do we? But I do on behalf of Christ, by Christ, as a representative of Christ, but it's really not just a representative of Christ, it's Christ himself doing it. When Paul said to, Epaphroditus, said to the church about Epaphroditus, he completed what was lacking in your service, he was simply saying, I know this came from you. Honor him for his willingness to do this and the role that God had given him. He almost died in the process. But I also don't just want to have a parade for Epaphroditus. I know this came from you. Over the years, as people have come to me and say, Jim, God really used you in my life. And when I was young, I used to say, oh, give all the glory to God. Don't give it to me. And I always watch people's reaction. And some of them were hurt. Because they knew that God had told them to go say thank you. Yet I went into biblical ninja and rejected it all. <laughs> you know, we give all the glory to God. Until one day I came to realize that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, everybody laid down their coats and the palm branches. Who got to walk on the palm branches? The donkey. Were they for the donkey? No, they were for the one who was riding on the donkey. And now when people come and say, Jim, God used you in my life. Thank you. I say, thank you for sharing that with me. In my spirit, I say, Lord, I just got to walk on a palm branch, but it was for you. It was for you. I know I didn't do that, but thank you. It feels good. Sure, the donkey enjoyed the parade. Hey, this is the best treatment I've had in a while. Sure beats the last business meeting. No, okay, let me, let me go back here. I digress. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but it's on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father who's in heaven. Folks, when, it, when we really are doing ministry, if someone doesn't notice, who cares? Oh, the Lord knows how many times did someone want their name on that plaque because of the gift they gave? So I want everybody to know I gave that. And now that I put that there, you can't move it. Oh, when you're doing what the Lord calls you to do, whether the people notice or not, it don't matter because you know the Lord's knowing. Oh, but sometimes people will say, that wasn't you. That wasn't you, it was the Lord. And I give him praise for what he did. Oh, by the way, and that just doesn't go just for preachers. It goes for those of you who send cards, for those of you who do go visit someone in a hospital, those of you who call somebody up and say, how are you doing? Those of you who call and say, hey, can I pray with you? Are you ordained? When you do what it is God's called you to do, and you let Christ use what he does through you, through other people. The body's ministered. The body gets stronger. Oh, by the way, and when we preachers and teachers don't have to do all that stuff, we get to minister the word. And then we can teach you the word, and you'll no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching. Because you'll have been fed the meat of the word. I want to get into something 
so bad, but there's only seven minutes, and I'm not sure we can do it in seven minutes. But we're going to try. Go to Philippians. Go to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. We're actually heading into Philippians chapter three. I'm not saying we won't go back to chapter two because there's still lots there, but. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Before we go any further, let me just quickly say, for those of you who say, hey, he's about done. No, Paul has got 44 more verses to go. When he says, finally, my brothers, here, it's kind of like when the preacher says, in conclusion, ladies, don't put your shoes back on just yet. But there's a reason why they do that. It's because they're wanting to get your attention. I know you've been listening a lot. I know you've been hearing a lot but I'm about to say something that I really want you to hear. And they'll say things like, I'm going to wrap this up with this because we know that in the way that people hear things, a, flip will be, a switch will be flipped where we might focus a little bit more. Hey, he's almost done. I think I can make it. <laughs> I understand. The mind can only absorb what your butt can endure. I understand that. <laughs> Paul says, finally. Doesn't mean he's done. He's actually going to say finally another time before we get to the end of the book. It's in chapter 4. But he says, he says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's been saying rejoice all along. This is the first time, though, in the words in the Lord have been added. And it clarifies what he means by rejoice. We're rejoicing in the Lord. Why? Because, as we've already been looking at through this whole study and other ones, I'm in Christ, nothing happens to me apart from His hand and His control. His full wrath has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. He's never going to be mad at me again. I'll never be punished for my sin. Jesus took the full punishment. Everything that comes to me from the hand of God now comes from His hand of love. And even if it's unpleasant, it's for my best. And I can rejoice in everything. I can count it all joy when I face trials of every kind. Because they're going to be used by God to accomplish His purposes. I can rejoice in the Lord. Does that mean I love what's going on at the time? No, but it doesn't mean, well, we're crushed. Sorry, heavy, we're pressed on but not crushed. We're, you know what I'm saying? That passage in 2 Corinthians 4 where he talks about all these different things that happen to you, but we're not. This happens, but we're not. This happens, but we're not. In the same way, that's what he's saying. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now, I'm going to get into next week when we get together what these things are that he's going to remind them. And actually, I'm going to show you, he's already referred to them in chapter 1, verses 27 and following, if you want to look at that early, uh, another time. We're going to get into when we get back together what it is that he's going to remind them of. We'll deal with that next week. But I want to deal with this word dog. He says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the Judaizers who've been trying to say, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. And they were trying trying to tie human works into salvation. And you know Paul has spent most of his time dealing with this issue. That's what the whole Jerusalem council was in Acts chapter 15. A lot of the places they were going, they were visiting the church and handing down the decision of the elders in this way. But it's ironic that Paul uses this word dog because the Jews used that word to describe the Gentiles. The Jews saw the Gentiles as the dogs. By the way, back in that day, they didn't have pet dogs. You know, when it says in, the, in Luke 16 that the dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores, we go, oh, isn't that nice? No, no. They, they say when a Doberman is licking you, he's not being nice, he's basting you. All right? In the same way, these dogs, when they came and licked his sores, they weren't bringing comfort. They were saying, hurry up with this dying process. We're ready to eat. There were dogs that just were scavengers and they ran around and just kind of, you've seen dogs in a dump. That's how the Jews saw the Gentiles. And Paul uses their term and calls the Jews, the Judaizers, these self-righteous people, he calls them by the same name. But here's what I want to deal with. Doesn't Jesus call a Gentile woman a dog in Matthew 15? You got time to deal with why? Go real quick to Matthew 15. It wasn't, his, it wasn't the focus of his ministry. You're getting close. <laughs> All right. 
Matthew 15, look at verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is, not, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now we've got to deal with this. Jesus did call her a dog, but you've got to understand when you're trying to deal with why and what the interpretation is, you got to look at the context. We're not going to take the time to read it all, but if you go back to the beginning of chapter 15, it says in verse 21 where we started, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the, this area. Where did he go away from? He'd been in Jerusalem and he'd been dealing with the Pharisees and, the, and their traditions and their commandments, and he pretty much had been saying, you guys are legalists about all this stuff, but you're totally missing it. Now, when it says he withdrew, we get this picture that he's by himself. I don't know if you notice or not, Jesus really couldn't go anywhere by himself. It was more than just Jesus and the twelve. All along, you've heard me teach on, there were many more disciples with him. And there's this time, he and his disciples are walking through this grain field on the Sabbath, and some of his disciples walking through this field with stuff this high, pick some of the grain, you know, wipe off of the, the chaff and eat, eat the grain. And who immediately in the middle of that field says, ah Pharisees were falling around all the time. Here is this Gentile woman who calls out and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. By the way, isn't that interesting? A Gentile calls him who? Son of David. She knew more about the Messiah than the Pharisees did. Have mercy on me. And he ignores her. Now, I'm sure that those self-righteous Pharisees that were in the crowd were thinking, good for him. You let that dog go. And disciples say, she's driving us nuts. Would you do something? He said, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, which he was, to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And he only did what his father had him do. And it's not right for the children's bread to go to the dogs. You know who's listening right now and loving every bit of this? Pharisees. Now, before I go any further, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know that the woman was going to have faith? Or did he not know? Of course, there's nothing that's going to happen tomorrow that he doesn't already see. He's already seen it all. He knew this woman was going to believe. But he was setting up the Pharisees. And he said, it's not right for the children's bread to go to the dogs. And they were sitting there going, yeah. Hey, man, I might like this guy after all. But then the woman shows a response, which is Jesus had been trying to teach them all along. Remember about the two people praying? The one that says, I'm so glad that I'm not like this guy next to me. I do this, I do that. And the other one says, I can't even look at you. I'm, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the woman's response was like that other one. She said, yeah, let me paraphrase it for you. I'll be a dog if I have to be a dog. But you're the only one that has what I need. And even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that come from the children's table. If I have to be a dog and get the crumbs, I'll be a dog because you're the only one that has what I need. Jesus then turns in front of those Pharisees and says, woman, you have great faith. And he did a miracle that he knew all along. He just was simply using a term that they had used to get their attention so that they would hopefully see the right heart attitude. Paul uses the same word that they had been using all along to describe the Gentiles. And he uses it to bless the Gentiles and say, Actually, they're the dogs. You're the children. You're the children. Oh, they had the opportunity to be the children, but they rejected the opportunity. You're the children. They're the ones who are getting the scraps right now. Isn't that what happened? God drew the Jews first. Oh, would there be a scrap here and a scrap there, a Gentile here, a Gentile there would be saved, but the food was going to the Jews. But they rejected him, which the Bible said all along was going to happen. And what happened? He moved his drawing from the Jews to the Gentiles. Oh, there are still Jews being saved here and there, but who's getting the crumbs right now? The Jews. Who are getting fed at the table? The church. Oh, one day he's going to take us and we're going to be, go with him. He's going to gather us in the rapture. 
And he's going to finish what he started with the nation of Israel, and he's going to give them the full portion again. Isn't that cool how much there is in just one little word in Philippians chapter 3? Next week when we get back together, we'll start taking a look at what he's been warning them about, and we'll continue to do so. Father, thank you again for this chance to open your word and to and allow your word to just teach us and to let your spirit just uh, bring it to a deeper level. Father, I thank you for the fact that I know in this room are a bunch of people who understand that it's not the pastor's job. Yet there may be some uh, people here today that need to release their pastor. Oh, Lord, there may be issues, but they, may they trust that you're big enough to take care of it, and you've got people that you desire to handle it, and it's not them. Father, may they experience the joy of the light burden and the easy yoke when they only find out what it is that you have for them to do. And Lord, may we believe that you'll not only minister through us in the thing that you ask us to do, may we at the same time realize and sense even a little bit that it's you doing it through us on their behalf. And we're just a representative of you. Lord, may we experience the joy of that awesome feeling when you use us. We pray this in Jesus' name.